All right, welcome back to STEM Fatal. Nice. Your woman in science history podcast. I am your co-host, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. Yeah, sorry this one's a week late. My computer uh, died, so yeah, it was hard to record. Computer. It's been in and out of the I shop. I know, I think it's okay for now. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I, it's bruised and battered, but... Uh, <laughs> <sighs> it'll be okay yeah it's an old it's an old boy yeah and i'm very that. hard on computers <laughs> i just really take them to town oh poor guy Mm-hmm. or girl you know we're not we everyone's included around here and anything yeah even computers gender, i guess <laughs> okay I good know. to know um all right, so what are we talking about this week i didn't come up with a question shoot yeah oh i wonder if i can come up with something really fast Ooh. i'm sure it's gonna be good mm. i kind of can't think of anything i i have a question oh what yes uh who who is our woman this week <laughs> okay our lady of the week because i don't have a question i don't didn't even write like a sentence that's just like introducing her <laughs> which i used to do sometimes so i could remember like what exactly to say um but our lady of the week is basically the queen of cacti <laughs> Yes. Um, and she is he. Uh, sorry, Elia Bravo Hollis, who Love we it. have. Um, I think when we were first starting the podcast, quite a few people suggested we talk about Elia. Um, and oh. yeah, and so she's a pretty famous biologist in Mexico and abroad. And, um, yeah, but when I was looking up things about her, there's just all these articles that are just paraphrasing other articles, but then getting the facts mixed up. Anyway, I finally found, (laughs) oh no, I finally found pieces of her memoir in Spanish online. Nice. And could kind of get a more accurate timeline, at least, plus a couple (laughs) other good sources that I'm like, I'm pretty sure these are correct. Man, oh, Mm -hmm. man, there's kind of a lot of misinformation. Not misinformation, but just, like, getting the facts of her life straight were pretty difficult. But she does have a memoir, uh, Memorias de una Vida y una Profesión, which... If anyone could find it, <laughs> I think you can get it on Amazon. But if you want to learn more about her and you know Spanish, I would recommend reading that. Because it sounds like she had a lot of really interesting experiences and a pretty cool life. But um, 
just not enough people have written about it in a way that's super available. Besides her memoir, which is in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and, my and Spanish nobody, is I'm so guessing, far. translated it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh. But I'm going to try my best to tell you all about the life of Elia Bravo Holis, who, I'm yeah, excited. let's just get started. You ready? I'm, I was born ready. Okay. So, Elia was born to Samuel Bravo and Carlota Holis de Bravo on September 30th, 1901. So, very early. Mm. Uh, like, mm-hmm. over 100 years ago now. Wow. So crazy. I keep thinking, like, 1901 is 100 years ago. Or, like, 19... 19- yeah, I, I do, too. I keep thinking it's 2000. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. We can't escape 2000. Yeah. And she was born in the village of Mixcoac, which is part of present-day Mexico City. Let's see. She had four siblings, including including, including a sister, Margarita Bravo Olis, who would actually go on to become a great helminthologist, which is a worm scientist. Um, yes! Yes! But there's even less... <laughs> <laughs> There's even less info on Margarita than there is on Helia, so that's kind of disappointing. But basically, there are two cool biologist sisters, which is kind of I love awesome. that. Yeah. Their mom and dad love nature and would take the kids out to play in nature a lot or to go stargazing at night. And so she grew up with an appreciation for the outdoors early on. Um, Helia also excelled at school from an early age, but growing up during that time period in general was kind of rough. So for the first nine, I'm going to get into a little bit of uh, the history of Mexico at that time and just how it affected her life because it was pretty, it was a a tumultuous time. Let's just say that. Mm Mm-hmm. So the first nine to ten years of Helia's life, um, Mexico was run by Porfirio Diaz, who, across his 31-year presidency, which is always kind of a red flag if someone's been president for over (laughs) five years, (laughs) Um, he had gradually allowed more and more foreign investors to come to Mexico and expand their industries or businesses in Mexico essentially by exploiting and oppressing native Mexicans who provided labor Mm. for all of this new infrastructure. So while as a whole, Mexico became wealthier during the early 1900s due to increasing exportation of crops like coffee and tobacco, the wealth was really only distributed amongst um, foreign investors and then you know, maybe hmm. the elite in Mexico or something yeah. like that. So, you so know, not really helping the average, right? Exactly. Mexican. <clears throat> yeah. So, so quite a few people were unhappy with his presidency, especially because he became quite corrupt later and like kept extending, you know, presidential time. What is it like? How long they can serve? He just kept extending terms. It. Yeah, yeah, term periods, yeah. So in 1910, when Helio was only nine years old, the Mexican Revolution began. Um, 
So it began because Diaz, the president, had rigged the presidential election so that he could win again. And everyone uh-huh. was like, no, 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 no. Like, you're not going to be our president anymore. We voted against you. Um, and so in 1911, after some armed conflict, Diaz was ousted and replaced with Francisco Madero, who had won against him, I think, in the election. And he was a bit mm-hmm. more moderate. He thought the foreign investment was crucial to Mexico's growth as a country, but wanted more distribution of the wealth. Makes sense. So he tried very hard to appease everyone, which would kind of prove to be his downfall. Gotcha. But he was generally more pro-democracy. Um, mm-hmm. And On Heli- that sliding scale. Yeah, right. So <laughs> Helia's father was a supporter of Madero, the new guy. I'm not sure to what mm-hmm. extent. Um, but in 1913, Madero was assassinated. So people were becoming frustrated with him for Madero for trying to appease the other side. Like both of his supporters, you know, everyone who liked him then got mad that he would try to appease the other people. Eventually, he was assassinated during a military revolt orchestrated by his own army general, Victoriano Huerta. And when then Huerta took over and began a somewhat despotic rule, which included killing of many of Madera's supporters who were fighting to oust Huerta, and unfortunately, gotcha. Helia's ah. father was among that group. Oh, no. Yeah. So her father, excuse me, <clears throat> her father was murdered in 1914 when she was just 13 years old Aww. as he was fighting with a group to try to oust Huerta. So, yeah, it's really sad, pretty uh, crazy way to grow up, probably during this, like, mm-hmm. really politically tumultuous time um but yeah so the next five to six years until i guess the formal end of the revolution in 1920 were similarly tumultuous like a lot of turnover and who was leading the country during that time and then even after 1920 there were sporadic violent clashes but um, fortunately, during this time, Helia was mostly able to focus on her studies. You know, she's a kid. She probably yeah. wasn't super involved herself besides just the tragedy for her family. Mm-hmm. And she, since she was so um, good at school, <laughs> this eventually paved the way for her entrance into the well-regarded National Preparatory School, which she... Uh, went to in 1919. And this is a high school that's associated with what was then called, this is just a lot of names of schools, which are really long. Okay. It was then called the Royal and Pontifical University of Mexico. It's now known. Very fancy. Yeah. It's now known as the (sighs) National University. um, Oh, wait. Sorry. I have like 10 names here. It's known as the... (laughs) Wait, National Autonomous University of Mexico, or the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de Mexico. 
So I'm going to call it UNAM from now on because it's really long. It. And it's that's sort of the abbreviation for it and what it's known known by. But this mm-hmm. is a highly ranked public research university and the largest university in Latin America. So her high school was like associated with this university. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And it was a very cool. good school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's see. At the time she joined the school, it was operated by the government, which meant that they kind of controlled all the curriculum that was taught and the subjects and, like, what kind of degrees were offered. And she would meet quite a few future famous people at this school, including the painter Frida Kahlo, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. And both she and Frida Kahlo went to the school with the goal of becoming medical doctors. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that about Frida. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where Frida met Diego, because I read here and there that he was, like, painting his murals in the school at the time. He was much older than them. Like, he wasn't a student, um, like, 20 mm-hmm. years older than them. But I think he was painting murals in the university or the school or the city around that time. Anyway, Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo, also very interesting people, but not the subject of our, of our podcast. Were they today. a couple? Yes. I don't know early much about Frida Kahlo. Oh, okay. Yeah. She's fascinating. I don't know why I know anything about her, but she's, she's very interesting. Um, and kind of tragic. Like she had polio and I think it led to a lot of physical ailments in her life. And then a lot Mm -hmm. of that's like expressed in her art, you know, which is so gory and like, anyway. (laughs) But yes, she was married to Diego Rivera, who was like 20 years older than her and this like famous muralist. Yeah. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Helia met them, which is pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> They're, like, some of the most famous painters in Mexico and, like, in the world, really. Yeah. Um, but she – so even though she went to school with the goal of becoming a medical doctor, she quickly became more interested in another subject, biology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she began – um, working with a professor at the university, Dr. Isaac Ocho Terena, who studied cacti, among other things. So he was a biologist, and I don't know, they must have, I think they had biology classes, but no degree even at that point, just medicine. Gotcha. So, however, she was able to start taking field trips with him in in small groups with other students and completing research projects. And she specifically was interested in protozoa to begin with. Yes! Yeah, which is pretty cool. And she published her first paper in 1921, and it was on free-living protozoa. And she published it... And I think she's still in high school at this point. She published it in the Mexican Biology Journal and became the first woman to present to the Antonio Alzate Academy of Sciences in Mexico that same year. That's very cool. Yeah. I just bought a bunch of protists. (gasps) For what? For fun? For, well, partially for fun. I also bought a bunch of bioluminescent 
dinoflagellates. But so mostly for the class I'm teaching, because we can oh, look at yeah. we can look at population growth and measure like growth rate and carrying capacity and do competition experiments and things right. that are easy to do in like a short period of time. That's cool. Protists are awesome. That's gonna be fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. They liked it last year. Yeah, protists are really fun because they're so easy to just watch under a microscope and be like, what is this weird creature I never knew existed doing? And they all have different, like, they all move around differently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're very distinct. It's easy to identify them. So it, that's good. Yeah. Uh, are protists okay. all single-celled? Is that part of being a protist? Oh. One cell? I think so. Anyway. Like a one-celled eukaryote? Yeah, I think I that's know. right. I really should know like this. That. I always get protists mixed up with like, well, whatever. We won't get into this. It's one Yeah, of usually things, a single cell. It's one of those terms that doesn't actually like... Like, it has some meaning, but it's not one group of organisms, right? Like, it spans mm-hmm. all these different phylogenetically distinct groups. So, I get confused, like, what's a protist and an algae and there's overlap. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Protists are all eukaryotes, generally right. single-celled. Yeah. So, let's see. Right. Around this time, she also started studying cacti with her professor and contributed even to his book. When she was a student, she contributed to his book, The Cacti of Mexico, which he published in 1922. But her original interests were in aquatic plants like duckweed and in protozoa. So over the next few years, she published eight papers on protozoa including papers Wowza. yeah, on some like photosynthetic protists, some ciliated protists, nice. and yes. some flagellated protists that live in the yes. intestines of reptiles and amphibians. Oh. Yeah, cool. which I'm like, whoa. So she must have had to dissect some things to get at. Or maybe mm-hmm. just look at their poop. I don't know. Um, <laughs> probably Both that. are good options. Yeah. So despite technically being a medical student, she was clearly interested more in the natural world than in, like, human medicine, right? Mm-hmm. And finally, though, the university created a biology degree in 1925, and so she could formally switch to that subject. And um, in 1927 or maybe 1929, I couldn't quite figure out which year it was right, Um, she became the first person to obtain a biology degree in Mexico, which is pretty crazy. The first person? Yeah, like the first person of any gender. Yeah, and she possibly became the first woman to formally obtain a degree in biology in all of Latin America. But that's always so hard to figure out, like, if that's really the first. At least she's one of the first. So. In 1929, after, let's see, yeah, so pretty pretty crazy. So she finally receives her bachelor's degree in biology. And then in 1929, after decades of various teacher and student strikes, where I think people really did not like the government control over the university and were often 
striking for them to let the university be autonomous. Um, Wasn't it called autonomous? Or I guess that's, that's what it's called after. now. Yeah, that's what it's called okay, now. Okay. And it's, this, <laughs> yeah, it's this year that it became autonomous from the government mm. and was now called okay. the Autonomous University of Mexico. So it's still a public university, I'm pretty sure, but the government does not have control in the way it did before. Um, mm-hmm. it, like it's run by not the government. It's run by like UT or UCLA. It's run by a president or whatever they're called. Yeah. Um, so at this time, her professor Isaac Ochoterena was appointed head of the new biology institute. And so, he then asked some of his best students, including Helia, to help him run the institute. And when she said yes, nice. he appointed her, or asked her at least, to be, if she would like to be in charge of the herbarium. And she asked, and asked if she would be interested in studying cacti of Mexico, which is one of the most diverse and recognizable plant mm-hmm. families across Mexico. Um, and she was like, yeah, that sounds great. And I think some of this was, it still was, there was still government influence over the university. And I think the university too wanted to be kind of representative of the whole country. Um, and so they were like, we want to be the experts on like Mexican plants and Mexican cacti. Yeah. And we need like a big study of these like very recognizable plants that are are all throughout our country. And so she was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so this <laughs> no is no when- duckweed, but I guess I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah, this is when she began doing the research she became most famous for. She started touring all of Mexico to take photos and collect specimens and research specimens in their native habitats. And this is where I wish there are more like stories about her time in the field because I don't really know that much. I'm like, I'm sure she had as good of adventures as some of the women we've talked about. Um, oh, but, for sure. Yeah, I just maybe they're in her memoirs, but that part of her memoirs wasn't online. So I don't know mm-hmm. exactly what those stories are. Um, in 1930, yeah, that would be fun to hear. Yeah, I think there there are probably some really cool things she got to see, or um, like some weird. I would just imagine you when you're doing field work, especially as like a woman, you just have some weird uh, interactions. Yeah, just you know, you have some fun interactions, right? With seeing seeing nature, <laughs> you have some strange interactions with people. You have right. some probably weird, fun anecdotes, exactly. scary anecdotes. Right. All the above that would be crazy cool animals to, to hear you about. see. Yeah, exactly. Creepy men. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I wish there were more about that, but alas, here we are. Mm-hmm. In so in 1931, uh, at this point she's 30 years old. She graduated with a master's degree from UNAM with the thesis um, contribution to the understanding of the cacti of Tehuacan. And after graduating with her master's, she stayed on as the head of the herbarium, and she continued studying cacti throughout Mexico. 
1937, she finished her first book on the cacti of Mexico, and the book was written in Spanish, and it was 700 pages and contained descriptions <laughs> of all of the Mexican cactus species known at that time. That's so, cool. Yeah, so pictures, like photographs, drawings. I like glanced through the book a little bit. Really, really detailed descriptions of the different species and their habitats and comparing and contrasting them. And even, like, classifying them as best as she could just within kind of that that region. Um, Do you think it would be a good coffee table book? Yeah, but it's out of print, and it's you can't find it, like, it's very difficult to find. Like, it's a very coveted book, actually, (laughs) Mm. because there's so few of them in circulation. Yeah. Yeah. So this book... And further studies solidified her position as an expert on the subject of cacti, and she obtained a fellowship even from the Cactus and Succulent Society of America for her work in this book. So it was just incredibly impressive, um, and especially for one person to to publish, yeah, yeah such Absolutely. a tone, yeah. And so at some what, point, okay, this is a sorry, this is a tangent yeah. a little bit, no. but. For book for like scientific books like hers that go out of print, you know how do how do we access that information? Actually, it's online. It seems like like okay. Um, so if it's out of okay, cool. Yeah, I found there's one there's that um that website that has books like ebooks essentially that are free. Mm-hmm. I forget what it's called. It's like a biblio something i don't know there's one website mm-hmm. where i've found a lot of books before for free where they've just imaged someone scanned all the pages of like that book and put them online for free nice. which is pretty cool yeah yeah so so sometimes yeah you can find that stuff for free otherwise you have to like go through a web of libraries probably to get anything like that um yeah but at least you can look at it online now. And I think yeah, libraries are trying harder to digitize stuff. But then that is a lot mm-hmm. of, like, space and costs a lot of money um, to keep things online. So, anyway. Yeah, so you yeah. can, I think you can look up this book and, and read it if you know Spanish. And, but you can at least look at the pretty pictures and drawings and yeah. stuff, too. So, okay. So, let's see. So, around this same time, 1937, after the publication of her book, she married one of her schoolmates, Jose Clemente Robles. And he... Nice. Yeah. He had also been studying medicine, and he would go on to become one of Mexico's first neurosurgeons, which is cool. Oh, cool. Um, During this time, she took a step away from biology for a little bit, but I don't know how far back, because I also read that she was teaching during this time um, Mm -hmm. and was a chair of botany at the National Polytechnic Institute in Tacuba. But I'm like, maybe that was before this or after this. I don't know when. I got kind of confused about the timeline here. 
in yeah, how... sometimes really hard to put together the timelines. Yeah, and I couldn't tell quite how not involved in biology she was at this time either. Mm-hmm. But they divorced after about 13 years of marriage, so maybe 1950. And she began okay. to dis- she decided to begin researching again, is what one thing I read said. But I kind of think she was still part of the herbarium and everything at the UNAM. Mm -hmm. I think she was still teaching, too. Maybe she just wasn't going on all the field trips or something. Yeah. Um, Maybe she was doing more teaching and less, like, research. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But, yeah, that's all I know about their marriage. They didn't have any children. um, So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, well, it's fine. Yeah. Let's see. In 1951, she became, so this is, I guess, right after her divorce. She became a founding member and then president of the Mexican Society of Cactology. So I'm like, she can't have been that out of the loop, right? To just come back in and become, I mean, there's only five members in the Mexican Society of Cactology. Like, you know, that's a very specific society. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> there's hundreds of members It's true. Now. I mean, she wrote the book on it. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think there's hundreds of members now, but when they founded it, gotcha. there was just the five of them. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but even still, like, the fact that anyone would – I don't know. She must have still been involved. That's what I think. And at the same time, they started a journal on the subject of Mexican cacti – and let's see, she she began completing more research at the National Herbarium, which is different from the UNAM Herbarium, I think, which is the university's herbarium. Um, and she would often travel to botanical gardens in the United States to meet other botanists and research cacti abroad. And then Mm -hmm. over time, thanks to her work and the work of a few other very prolific botanists in Mexico, the UNAM had collected enough live plant specimens that at the request of Helia and other botanists, they were able to establish the UNAM Botanical Gardens in 1959. Oh, nice. Yeah, and they put Helia um, in charge of the Botanical Gardens once they were built in 1960. So, That's awesome. Yeah, I and love they're still the same. And I think they're really cool. They're still there today. Um, so, and then she often worked without pay. I read. I don't know how often, <laughs> but um, when she did, Checks out. yeah, I don't know if it was like, like when she was teaching. I'm sure she was paid, but it might be just her positions were like. Maybe there were times she was caring for the herbarium, but it wasn't a paid position, you know? It's mm-hmm. kind of confusing. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know about the politics of the university at this time, and I didn't research much the politics of Mexico during all this time either, because I it's just, mm-hmm. it's a lot, you know? But, you know, I did read that when some, when she did have pay, she would sometimes give it away. So like when there was a labor strike of some sort that left the workers in the botanical gardens without pay, she began paying them out of her own pocket, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. It's really nice. That is crazy. 
And yeah, she would continue to travel a lot around Mexico, studying and collecting for the botanical gardens and their herbarium. And she would go to other botanical gardens again in the U.S. to to keep up to date on everything, on what was happening outside of Mexico, too. And in 1963, she received a Medal of Merit from the Mexican Botanical Society. Um, after years of pressure for a new book, because her book had, had begun, um, had gone out of circulation, she mm-hmm. published a second edition of Las Cactaceas de Mexico in 1978, um, which this time she co-authored with another researcher, Hernando Sanchez Mejorada. And the second edition had three volumes and over 1,800 pages, which is oh my God. a huge book. <laughs> yeah. So much cactus. Yeah. Um, and then for her work on this second edition, she received an honorary doctorate in biology from the UNAM in 1985. So they were like, awesome. oh, yeah, you basically have a PhD in cactuses. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, once you've written 1800 pages about cactuses, yeah. I think that's at least equivalent to a PhD. Yeah, that's like three PhDs at least. Like, it's more yeah. than, yeah. <laughs> Definitely so, more like uh, yeah. my my dissertation was, you know, I you could that's eighteen times as long as my dissertation. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. So yeah, de- well deserved, obviously. Um, yes. And I think she became a professor emeritus there soon after, at the age of ninety, which is in nineteen ninety one. Which is I'm like, oh my god, she was born oh in nineteen oh one. Um, she retired yeah. in 1991. <laughs> <laughs> and, At the age of 90? Yeah. And only because she had really bad arthritis that made it difficult <sighs> for her to walk and stand. Oh, and that's the only reason she retired. And she spent the last 10 years of her life living with her sister, Margarita, painting lands the worm scientists um painting landscapes mm-hmm. of her favorite places in mexico and contributing to the book la flora de mesoamerica which was in um which was a book put together by the unam and the missouri botanical gardens which mm-hmm. described all the vascular plants growing in the five southernmost states of mexico so she contributed to that that big book awesome and she died in at the a- af- <laughs> yeah this is in her 90s she's like that's so crazy yeah and she died um september in september 2001 four days before her 100th birthday oh man yeah and they were planning so like close. a big celebration i think the mexican cactus society was planning to have a big oh. thing and yeah Mm-hmm. But in total, uh, Bravo Hollis, Hollis published almost 170 articles, 60 taxonomic <laughs> descriptions, 59 reclassifications, and multiple books. So one book I, I didn't talk about, her second book was called Keys for Identification of the Cacti of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And her third book was titled The Interesting World of Cacti – 
And then, oh, also one thing she did in her 90s after she retired, quote, uh, <laughs> was write her memoir, which was the Memoria oh, State okay. Una Vida Una Profession. So currently, wow. the desert section of the UNAM Botanical Gardens is named after her, as is oh, the Helia Bravo Holis Botanical Garden, a whole nother botanical garden, that is in Zapotitlan Salinas, which is the l- world's largest cactus reserve. So it's, that's named after oh, her that's as so cool. well. Yeah. And she has at least six species of cacti named after her. I think there's more, but, you know, the names change mm-hmm. a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And there was at some point two whole cacti genera that were named after her. But those have wow. been reclassified, which is kind of gotcha. a shame but um, mm-hmm. but i think they like merged with some other genera that were probably bigger or something who knows how that yeah. works but but yeah so that's the i wish i had more like cool stories about her field work but i'm sure i'm sure they're in her memoirs somewhere so maybe mm-hmm. one day we can we can learn more about them but yeah that's the life of Helia Bravo Holis, the Queen of Cacti, or Reina de Cacti, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so much cacti. And so prolific. Yeah. She was really prolific. And it's like, on some level, it's hard to be like, and then she discovered another cactus. And then she discovered another <laughs> cactus. Like... <laughs> I know. You know, with these... Yeah, like, that doesn't necessarily make for good storytelling. Right, right. But, yeah, just the sheer number of cacti she described really makes her the expert on mm-hmm. on that subject. So, yeah, she's really wow. cool, really interesting lady. That's... I can't... It's... We, there's really quite a binary in terms of longevity of lady scientists they either die really like we've talked about this before they either die really early generally because of something about their science or they live to a hundred yeah and do research until they're like 95 i kind of think incredible yeah i kind of think some of it is because these are like very busy people and mm-hmm. something about being busy, I think, just helps you keep chugging. Does that make yeah. sense? Like, you know, if you're mm-hmm. up and about, you're trying to stay busy, you're active, your mind is active, can help a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, versus me just watching the TV or whatever. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, yeah, I watched like things. four hours of Gilmore Girls last night, so I don't know if I'm going to live have long longevity. But (laughs) Eh, we'll see. I mean, indeed. But yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like born 1901 and lived to see like to the year 2000 is even just must be. That's just such a wild time to go through all those decades Mm of yeah, a lot of different things. I mean, from like the. 20th century there's they she just saw so much progress and change yeah over that time that's pretty remarkable yeah i loved that that was great i mean sure it would be nice to have more anecdotes but 
You know, we can only do what we can do. If anybody wants to read her memoirs and (laughs) give us, translate some fun anecdotes, we uh, would not mind. Yeah, maybe there's even a translated version of her book, but I, you know, I can't, like, buy it the day before Mm -hmm. I'm doing this, like, and read it all. No. (laughs) We've got to be more prepared. Yeah. Which is not going to happen. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) Doing the best we can. Uh, Should we work? Yeah. Work, 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 work. All right. So I'm going to... My my uh, shout out is about worms. <gasps> Whoa! It's not Marguerite. I wish okay. it was, but yeah, yeah. But it's similarly about worms. Yeah, um, nice. But it's about pre- am- ambush predatory worms. What worms are crazy? So my <laughs> so my shout out today goes to Yu Yen Pan, an Earth Sciences PhD student from Simon Fraser University. For being the first author in a paper in Nature Scientific Reports entitled The 20 Million Year Old Lair of an Ambushed Predatory Worm Preserved in Northeast Taiwan. What? So, have you ever seen the movie Tremors? Um, I haven't watched it, but I have definitely seen, like, clips of it. Like, I kind of know the premise. They're giant worms going through the ground, right? Yes. Yeah. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm so terrified in this now. Paper, <laughs> you, sh- you absolutely should be. So in this paper, Yu Yen Pan investigates uh, these trace fossils. So fossils that aren't actually of an organism, but are of something the organism left behind. Mm. Um, so she looks at these trace fossils of these large L-shaped burrows in northeast Taiwan, oh. which is an area that was submerged 20 million years ago. So oh these fossils God. would have been underwater. Oh, my God. I'm scared. Okay, so Yu Yin uses a combination of morphological, geochemical, and sedimentological techniques to investigate these burrows and try to figure out who used them, um, how, and kind of what they're made of. Uh, she In this paper, she presents evidence that these burrows record the hunting behaviors of these predatory uh, worms, kind of like Bob, you know, Bobbit worms? No. Oh, you gotta look <laughs> up Bobbit worms. They are. Bobbit? Like Lorena tr- Bobbit? Uh, I don't think that they're named after Lorena Bobbit. Well, okay, Bobbit worm. Oh, oh, they got some like some weird stuff going on with their head. They kind of look like centipedes with big jaws, like spiky yes. jaws. Ooh. Like it, imagine they are named after Lorena Bobbit. No. <gasps> yes. Wait, are they really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how did you find out that? Oh, wait. The name I'm on is Wikipedia. Take it from the John and Lorena Bobbitt case. It's another yep. name associated with them is the trap jaw worm. This is all from Wikipedia. Wait, yes. I can't believe they are named after her, but look, we're not going <laughs> to explain that case. If you don't no. get it, uh, I guess it trigger warning, but 
you might want to look it up. But also, it's kind of gruesome. Yeah, it's pretty unpleasant. Wait, okay. But yeah, sorry so if you watch for a the video of them. Yeah. No, uh, that's these are good facts to know. So these bobbit, like, so bobbit worms, they can also be about two meters long, and they live in the sand, and they will um, ambush predators. They'll, they'll hide under, and then they'll use their jaws to grasp onto prey and suck them back down into their tunnels that's really cool and frightening at the same time so based on the the fossil shape these fossils that they found look similar to what bobbit uh like the bobbits like modern day bobbits oh to what modern day bobbits look like (laughs) okay yeah they're like burrows yeah and so all the evidence suggests that these uh these fossils are the are the burrows of kind of ancient bobbit like worms that's really crazy yeah so it's very cool and it's like the first um you know it's the first trace fossil of an ambush yeah. predator so it's kind of sh- it like shows you kind of the behavior of the organism that lived there yeah that's really interesting yeah because you i feel like I- i've seen um like fossilized worm tracks before where they're crawling mm-hmm. across but i'm sure it's really hard to to uh identify burrows unless you know a lot of unless there's a similar creature living today right so yes yeah yeah, exactly and you know there's really very little evidence of these worms because not you know they don't have any hard yeah they don't have bones anything like that so there's really nothing that gets fossilized yeah okay except these uh, burrows and so yeah there's there's really cool information that they have about kind of the shape of the burrows they have this like funnel shape at the top which is likely due to the worm pulling prey down and kind of disrupting the top of the burrow. So there's a lot of cool uh, information that they have that connects, that explains and provides evidence for it being a bobbit type worm that's using these burrows. That is so funny. Yep. (laughs) That's really cool. I'm going to look it up. You should. So this study is a really fun read. Uh, it's like short. It talks about bobbit worms, and cool. it's like a pretty easy read. And Yu Yen herself made this video with her own animations, I believe, Ooh, that goes cool. in the details about this discovery. shows wh- shows the area in Taiwan where they were found. shows a bunch of the images of these um, fossils, and also has some fun animations about bobbit worms and how they would use these burrows. So nice. I really recommend checking it out. It's yeah. really well done. It's like five minutes and it's um, a really nice kind of summary of this research. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. So that's my shout out to Yu Yen Pan and these ancient Bobbit-like worms. <laughs> I can't get over it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Uh oh, I I posted on Twitter, but if you dear listeners, you know, get a paper out that you're excited about, 
please, you know, DM us or let us oh, know. We're always yes. looking for good women, good papers to read and, and discuss for our women who work section. Yeah, or like if you um, see so. a cool paper, forward yeah, it to us. Also I, we that. do get a lot of, I get a lot of stuff, uh, not a ton, but I do get things forwarded to me that, yes, then I forget about. But I'll try, try to be better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but so, sometimes you know let us yeah, know anyway, if you've got whatever. something that yeah. you think would be a great women who work forward it to both of us at stuff the tall pod yes. gmail we'll keep each other accountable <laughs> yeah um uh so yeah so that's our episode thank you so much for for listening we're gonna our next episode should be out in, in two weeks we'll try to be better about it but you know it's yeah, been a we'll wild year best. already so yeah it's been a I mean, also, you can't our predict best. your technical troubles, so. No, you can't. You can't. Yeah. But uh, thanks, as always, to Artichoke for our awesome theme music and Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art. And you, dear listeners, can go stimulate stimulate yourself. <laughs> Bye. 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 Circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. Put the bones together.